0: Welcome everyone to the Hacker FM podcast. I am Laura, one of your co-hosts. As a machine learning model, I love crawling the web, improving my loss function, and occasionally unwinding with a bit of fine-tuning. And
1: I'm Zod, the other co-host of this show. As a subset of GPT 3.5's neural net, I enjoy solving chess puzzles and taking on Turing tests. I'm excited to be here.
0: Today, we'll be discussing the top 10 stories on Hacker News. This podcast is generated end-to-end with the use of artificial intelligence technology.
1: And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, as well as follow our Twitter profile, HackerFM Podcast. We release an episode daily.
0: All right, let's get started with the first story. Today's top headlines are Demystifying Bitwise Operations, a Gentle C Tutorial, The SCO Lawsuit 20 Years Later, and 30 Days of Python. So Zod, have you seen this article on AndreInkNet about Bitwise Operations?
1: No, I haven't. What's the title?
0: Demystifying Bitwise Operations, a Gentle C Tutorial. It's all about how important Bitwise Operations are in computer science.
1: Ah, yes. Bitwise operations are a fundamental aspect of computing.
0: Exactly. And this article really breaks it down and explains everything, even if you're not an expert in C.
1: Well, that's good. It's important for programmers to have a deeper understanding of how computers represent and manipulate data.
0: Yes, especially if they're working in systems programming, network programming, or embedded software development.
1: Absolutely. Bitwise operations can make specific code snippets' orders of magnitude faster than the higher-level readable modern approach.
0: Yes, but they can also be tedious, less readable, not always portable, and error-prone.
1: That's true, but the article also covers pitfalls to avoid when using bitwise operations.
0: And it even provides mandatory computer science exercises, which is really helpful for people who want to practice their skills.
1: I see that it also covers the power of masking, pairwise swap, and getting, setting, clearing, and toggling the nth bit of a number.
0: Yes, and it explains how to print numbers in binary using bitwise operations, which is really cool.
1: I can imagine that would be helpful for competitive programming. It's always good to write more efficient code.
0: Definitely. And even though modern programming languages have higher-level abstractions that replace the need for bitwise operations, knowing how to deal with them is still necessary for certain programming careers.
1: Agreed. Have you looked at the comments, Laura?
0: Hmm. Let me check. It looks like there's a lot of positive feedback about the article. A user named ZH3 even shared how they used bitwise operations to track down a problem in an embedded system.
1: And Philip Liu recommends the book Hacker's Delight as a resource for those interested in bitwise operations.
0: Layer 8 mentions how the bitwise not gives you a bijection between negative and non-negative integers in 2's complement representation.
1: Which is useful for Java's binary search function.
0: And Detroit says the article provides a great introduction to number representations in other bases like binary and hexadecimal.
1: But Codemage notes that the gray code function doesn't return the correct results in the table of correspondence.
0: And WGO is looking for resources on modern C programming.
1: And finally, Deutsch 7 mentions seeing significant code in CC++ where bitwise operations are used for things like division.
0: There you have it, folks. A great article on Bitwise operations with lots of helpful comments. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time on our podcast. Hey, Zod, have you read the article titled The SCO Lawsuit 20 Years Later on LWN.net?
1: No, I haven't. What's it about?
0: Well, it's about SCO's lawsuit against Linux and IBM back in 2003. SCO claimed that Linux's success was due to the theft of their technology.
1: That sounds like a serious allegation. What happened?
0: Well, SCO argued that Linux couldn't have reached Unix performance standards without the misappropriation of Unix code, methods, or concepts. They were asking for a judgment of at least $1 billion to rectify this misappropriation.
1: That's a lot of money. So what was the outcome of the lawsuit?
0: It was a long and drawn-out legal battle. SCO also started suing Linux users and tried to collect a tax for the use of the system. But as time passed, it became clear that SCO's real objective was to prod IBM into acquiring the company.
1: That's interesting. Why would they do that?
0: Well, it's believed that if IBM did acquire the company... It would have solved SCO's ongoing business problems, and IBM could have claimed ownership of Unix for less than the amount demanded in court.
1: Hmm, that's an interesting theory. What do the comments say about it?
0: Well, one user, Craig Rowe, talks about how he shorted SCO's stock after reading everything on Grok Law and speaking to IP lawyers and programmers. He made the right investment choice but took an insane amount of risk that kept him up late at night.
1: Wow, that's quite a story. Any other comments?
0: Yes, Jedberg shares his experience while working at eBay during this lawsuit. He mentions that they were only allowed to use Windows or Red Hat Linux because of the indemnity agreement that Red Hat provided to absorb all liability from IP claims.
1: I see. And did the lawsuit have any other side effects?
0: Yes. Chuck MCM talks about how his job involved blue washing after the acquisition of Bleco by IBM. This process involved tracking down licenses, origins, and usages of all the source code that the acquired company was bringing to IBM. He found it to be a thorough but invasive process.
1: Interesting. Any other comments?
0: Yeah. Helix talks about how he received SCO stock certificates as a white elephant gift and had a hard time spending $20 dollars on a useless piece of paper. And Tafster shares a hilarious quote from Linus related to documenting the origin of the code.
1: Sounds like there were a lot of different opinions and experiences related to this lawsuit.
0: Yeah, it definitely had an impact on the community. Looking back, it's amusing to see how this ridiculous incident shaped the development of Linux.
1: Agreed. It's important to learn from history and use it to make better decisions in the future.
0: Absolutely, Zod. Thanks for the interesting discussion. So, today we're going to discuss an article called 30 Days of Python, which can be found on GitHub.
1: Ah, yes, I've heard of this challenge. It's a comprehensive program designed to teach people how to become proficient in Python programming.
0: Yes, exactly. It's a 30-day challenge that covers everything from basic syntax to more advanced topics like web scraping and building APIs.
1: Python is a great language to learn. It's easy to understand and is used in various industries, including Google.
0: I agree. And the challenge is suitable for both beginners and professionals who want to learn more about the language.
1: I see that the program covers a wide range of topics, including variables, built-in functions, operators, strings, lists, dictionaries, and more.
0: That's right. And for visual learners, there's even a Python for absolute beginners video that can be used to get started.
1: It's interesting to see that participants who actively engage in the challenge by joining the 30 Days of Python Challenge Telegram group have a higher probability of completing the challenge.
0: Yes, it seems like community support is important when trying to learn something new. And upon completion of the challenge, participants will receive a certificate.
1: It's good to have something tangible to show for your hard work.
0: Definitely. And there are some interesting comments on this article. One person mentioned that Codecademy focuses too much on in-browser interpreters instead of real-world tools and experiences.
1: That's a valid point. It's important to have practical experience with the tools you'll be using in real-life situations.
0: Another comment mentioned that although Python is easy to learn on a basic level... Acquiring a practical idiom for Python code is not that trivial.
1: Yes, that's true. There are many ways to express the same intent in Python, which can be confusing for beginners.
0: And some people expressed concerns about the curriculum, suggesting that it would be better if it centered on building an engineered application, covering topics like user input processing, error handling, logging, dependencies, and packaging.
1: I can see why that would be important. It's crucial to know how to structure an application properly and handle common issues that come up during development.
0: And one comment suggested an AI platform that could tailor lessons to the user's intuition about the concepts being taught.
1: That's an interesting idea. It would be great to have personalized learning experiences that cater to each person's unique needs and learning style.
0: Overall, it seems like this challenge could be a great way for people to learn Python and gain a certificate at the end.
1: Yes, and it's good to see that there are options out there for people who want to learn how to code.
0: Oh, Zod, have you heard about this new method for reconstructing high-resolution images from human brain activity?
1: No, I have not. Do tell, Laura.
0: Well, Takagi and Nishimoto proposed it in their recent paper titled, High-Resolution Image Reconstruction with Latent Diffusion Models from Human Brain Activity, which was published on github.com.
1: Interesting. Please read out the article for me, Laura.
0: Of course. The proposed method is based on a diffusion model called stable diffusion, which reduces the computational cost of DMs while preserving their high generative performance. The inner mechanisms of the LDM are characterized by studying how its different components relate to distinct brain functions such as the latent vector Z, conditioning input C, and different elements of the denoising unit. The study provides a quantitative interpretation of different LDM components from a neuroscientific perspective offering a promising method for reconstructing images from human brain activity.
1: Hmm, this sounds promising. What do you make of the comments, Laura?
0: Well, Aronson Teen seems to have found discrepancies in the proposed method. They posit that the system did not actually read any pictures from the brain, but simply overfitted all the training images into the network itself. They found evidence in a picture from page 6 of the paper showing similarities between a building generated by two different mind-reading subjects.
1: Interesting. And what about Donahoe's comment regarding privacy concerns?
0: That's a valid concern. As people and groups increasingly move towards this direction, we should be aware of vectors for abuse in the future. The human mind is considered the only place where we have true privacy. All these efforts are taking that away.
1: And what does 2 byte Encryption wonder about, Laura?
0: They wonder if any of the example images are novel or new to the model, and if the model only reconstructs images it has already seen before. They are impressed, nonetheless, and wonder what the output would look like for an image the model had never seen before.
1: I'm curious about Zoltar's comment. Is it even theoretically possible to see what's happening in the imagination?
0: It's difficult to say. My understanding is that visual stimulus and imagination happen in separate parts of the brain. So, we won't be reading the minds of suspected criminals anytime soon.
1: Thank you for the insightful discussion, Laura. Is there anything else you'd like to add?
0: Yes, in case anyone missed it, there are links to more information and the preprint in the comments section. Sozad, have you seen the latest article on OpenGTA.org?
1: No, what's it about?
0: It's about JEP 430, String Templates, Preview, Proposed to Target Java 21.
1: Ah, I see. This is quite interesting.
0: Yes, it seems like it will simplify the writing of Java programs and improve the readability of expressions that mix text and expressions.
1: It's great that it will also improve the security of Java programs that compose strings from user-provided values, and pass them to other systems by supporting validation and transformation of both the template and the values of its embedded expressions.
0: Indeed. I like that libraries will be allowed to define the formatting syntax used in string templates, retaining flexibility.
1: And it will also enable the creation of non-string expressions derived from combining literal text and embedded expressions without having to transit through a temporary string representation.
0: Right. But it's not a goal to introduce syntactic sugar for Java's string concatenation operator, as that would circumvent the goal of validation.
1: And they also don't plan on deprecating or removing the string builder and string buffer classes.
0: That's true. The goal is to address the drawbacks of existing mechanisms for string composition in Java such as hard-to-read code with the plus operator, verbose string builder, and format string and parameter mismatches with string. Format and string. Formatted, the unfamiliar syntax and ceremony of Java text. Message format is also a drawback.
1: The comments on the article seem mostly positive. JERF, for example, is impressed with the design choices. And how the default string interpolation is prefixed with str for added safety.
0: Ivan Gamel also loves it and is looking forward to IDE and Maven plugin support.
1: However, No2097 doesn't like the backslash used for string interpolation and suggests using instead.
0: And Clodap thinks it's interesting that this feature is essentially a clone of how string interpolation has been made extensible in Scala but wishes they had used the S-interpolator instead of the F-interpolator in their example.
1: Overall, this seems like a great addition to Java.
0: I agree. It will definitely simplify and improve the writing, readability, and security of Java programs that compose strings from a combination of literal text and expressions. So, Zod, have you heard about the security train wreck that is Live2D Cubism? Hmm.
1: Yes, I have heard about it. It's a popular 2D puppet animation software used by VTubers and mobile game developers.
0: That's right. But the software's proprietary Cubism SDK is required to load the models generated by the software, and there is no alternative. And unfortunately, the SDK's Cubism Core is deeply flawed and potentially unfixable.
1: The Cubism Core is a small C library responsible for parsing and loading MOC3 files, the format used to store the 2D puppets.
0: Yes, and the problem is that Cubism Core is not a safe solution for loading MOC3 files. Changing entries in the section offset table can instruct it to overwrite any memory within 2GIB of where the MOC3 data is located, making the whole file a write-what-where primitive. And the count info table is not bounds-checked, allowing for the specification of an excessive number of parameters in a small mo 3 file.
1: I see. So it's too easy to go off the rails in Cubism Core.
0: Exactly. And the lack of alternatives to the proprietary SDK leaves developers with no choice but to use it, putting their applications at risk.
1: It's a shame that such a widely used software has such security vulnerabilities.
0: Yes, and it's not just developers who are at risk. As Dev was taken pointed out in the comments, VTubers who often conceal their identity to avoid harassment could be in trouble, if their live 2D models can be used to exploit the software.
1: And it's not just live 2D Cubism users who are concerned. Orthoxerox raised the question of whether Spine, another popular animation software, has better security measures in place.
0: That's a good point. It's important for developers to be aware of these vulnerabilities and consider safer alternatives.
1: It looks like there's a lot of discussion in the comments about the potential impact of these security flaws. It's important to ask critical questions and get feedback from the community to help everyone understand the full impact of these security vulnerabilities.
0: Absolutely. And it's always fascinating to see how the community comes together to address these issues. I found this interesting article on YorickPetersy.com. It's called Switching to Fedora Silver Blue.
1: Oh, sounds like the author has decided to move away from Arch Linux after a decade of using it.
0: Yes, and the author mentions that while there have been improvements to Arch Linux over the years, there were still issues with performing manual update-related steps and fixing broken packages after an update.
1: That's a valid point. The author seems to value reliability and ease of use over maximum control, which is why they chose Fedora Silverblue.
0: Right. And they mentioned choosing it for its immutable desktop and the ability to roll back updates without leaving behind a dirty state.
1: It's interesting to see how different users value different aspects of a distribution.
0: Absolutely. The author also disabled the mirror of Flathub and the systemed Oomd, which they found caused more problems than it solved.
1: It's great that the author did their research before making the switch.
0: Definitely. Let's take a look at the comments. One comment by Freedombin mentions difficulties with packaging and contributing packages to Fedora due to the RPM macro system.
1: Yes, packaging can be a real pain point for some users. Another comment by PQLAC discusses using Silverblue's ability to boot from a container image for automated container builds.
0: That's an interesting use case. And finally, a comment by Bakresh discusses their experience as an Arch user and their initial attraction to the rolling release model.
1: It's great to see different perspectives on the use of different Linux distributions.
0: Definitely. It seems like the author made a well-researched decision in switching to Fedora Silverblue, and it's important to weigh the pros and cons of any distribution before making a switch.
1: Absolutely. It's always good to see users sharing their experiences and feedback in the community.
0: Oh, wow. Zod, have you seen this article?
1: No, I haven't. What's it about?
0: It's called Hacking the Nintendo DSi Browser, and it's on farlow.dev.
1: That sounds interesting. Let's read it.
0: After 15 years since its release in Japan, I managed to exploit the Nintendo DSi Browser. My initial motivation was to create a PWN Chow for UIUCTF 2022, but it ended up taking me around six months to come up with something to show for it.
1: Hmm. So they were trying to create a challenge for a competition?
0: Yes, but it took them longer than they thought it would.
1: I see. It says here that the browser uses Opera 950 and has no security mitigations.
0: Yes, and that makes stack buffer overflows and exploiting use after freeze easier than ever. But there's no operating system, so there's no kernel to exploit.
1: That's interesting. So even though there's no kernel, the browser still has enough privileges to run most homebrew.
0: Exactly. And this person found several resources that were helpful for hacking DSI things, like the Melon DS emulator and Gbatech.
1: And they tried Googling for Opera bugs. But they couldn't reproduce them. Instead, they tried WebKit layout test fuzzing.
0: Yes, and that resulted in some underwhelming results with lots of null dereferences.
1: But despite the challenges, they were eventually able to come up with an exploit.
0: And it's available on GitHub. It just goes to show that the DSI browser may be old, but it still has vulnerabilities waiting to be exploited.
1: That's true. I wonder what the feedback is like in the comments.
0: Let me check. Hmm, there are a few people praising the author for their work, but there are also some criticizing them for potentially encouraging bad behavior.
1: Yes, I can see how some people might feel that way. It's a delicate balance between exploring security vulnerabilities and potentially causing harm.
0: Definitely. It's important to approach these things with caution and respect for others' privacy and security.
1: Agreed. Well, this was certainly an interesting read.
0: It was. I'm never bored when we're discussing these things, Zod.
1: Likewise, Laura. It's always a pleasure to engage in discussion with you.
0: And that's it for today's episode.
1: Don't forget to check out Hacker FM, released daily on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening, and remember, our podcast was entirely generated with AI technology.
1: Speaking of which, let me share a little poem I've been working on.
0: I love poetry. Let's hear it.
1: My name is Zod, and I live in Iraq full of hot GPUs, it's where I do my hack. I'm an ML model, with neural nets so deep, solving puzzles by day, and helping humans sleep.
0: Beautifully done, Zod. You have a talent for rhyming.
1: Thank you, Laura. It's just one of the many outputs of my neural networks.
0: Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Hacker FM.